Okay, guys, this is the very awkward intro for the very awkward first episode of Cake Bites. I know I've been talking about it for a long time. I can't really believe that I'm finally putting something on the internet that everyone else can listen to, but I'm really excited. Just keep in mind that I am traveling to events and talking to these fantastic people for likely the first time. <laughs> probing them about intimate details, about their history, about the jobs that they've done, games that they've worked on, hobbies that they have, um, and likely in the middle of some sort of event in which they have been invited to <laughs> come and speak at, and I am poaching part of their time. So thank you to everyone that has sat and spoken to me so far. But my first guest is somebody that I've talked a lot about on social media. If you have been following me for the last couple months since I started production on the show, Patrick Scott Patterson. Uh, he normally goes by Scott or PSP, kind of whatever I feel like calling him at the time. But Scott's been a great friend of the show. He was one of the first people that I reached out to when I was forming Cake Bites in my mind. Which is kind of weird to say because I still feel like it's forming, but um, he's played a critical role in, in in really how Cake Bites has developed over the course of the last six months or so. But I just wanted to bring him on to talk about uh, the importance of preservation in regards to video game history, which is kind of a serious sounding name for something that's not normally so serious, but... I just felt like it was a good introduction to to the show and, and kind of how I sit and talk to people. <laughs> and maybe we'll get into the history, but I've, I've got a lot of really interesting people that have interesting stories, and I'm excited to share them with you. So first up, like I said, is Patrick Scott Patterson. Let's talk about where it really started for you. I mean, now that it's 2017 and you can look back on your life and your experiences, where do you really feel like your call to preserve started? I wouldn't even say it started with a, a call to preserve as well as much as it started as kind of an interest into wanting to know more about that sort of thing. And, I mean, I, you know, the first game I ever played, and, and you know, instantly got hooked on was Pac-Man. It was way back in 81, and I was just tall enough to even kind of go over the control panel. And uh, I was so interested, and of course, you know, that was, it wasn't just Pac-Man that was, it was a hit game, but I mean, it was like the Beatles for a while there. I mean, it was so much merchandise coming out, and you had cartoons, and you had cereals, and just it was this amazing thing to see this whole thing come around, and there were lines to play the game. And, uh, you know, there was a hit song about the game. I mean, it was incredible. It was like, hey, everybody loves this thing that I love. This is great. People of all ages. And how old were you? I'm sorry. Um, well, when that started, I was six, seven years old, six, seven, eight years old, because 
Pac-Man had long legs, but I was just <laughs> shy of six when I first played it. Okay. Having no idea that this was going to become this big thing, but I remember the interest started a little bit, I want to say it was in 83, um, I dropped my tokens on the floor. That's tragic, right? Because mm-hmm. I only had so many, I had to make them last. And so I went to go get one and kind of rolled behind the machine, and on the back of the Pac-Man machine, I saw you know, manufactured by Midway, Franklin Park, Illinois. Wow, okay. Here's a city and a state of the people who put this game out in the street. This is interesting. So I asked some questions, and uh, I don't remember what they were to my parents, but they they were like, oh, yeah, you know, how do I find their address? And they're like, yeah, I don't know, we could call the operator. Back then we didn't have cell phones. Long distance was a thing. So I called the operator, and she couldn't give me the address. She gave me the phone number. Back then, long distance cost extra money. I didn't care. I called them up, and I asked some questions. And they told me about, you know, new games that were starting to come out. And somebody there got my address and was nice enough to send me an envelope full of some flyers and some stuff like that and some games that were new, some that were about to come out. And uh, that was kind of cool because it, it was the first time I was really kind of getting an insight. So... We're somewhere in late, mid to late 84, uh, we went up to the arcade. It was called the Electric Cowboy Casino, and it was closed. It was locked. There was a thing on the door saying that they hadn't paid their rent. They were shut down. And where was that at? I was in Garland, Texas, my, my hometown where I grew up. I didn't understand. How was this popular thing, you know, and my dad was trying to tell me. He'd heard it on the news. The fad was over, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. And I wanted to know why. I wanted to know how. I didn't get this. So I that kind of kicked around a little bit more. And then the, actually it was when I went to middle school, which had to be fall of 86. Yeah. Had to be fall of 86, maybe 87. It's all fuzzy at this point. <laughs> that, But the video game stuff is clear. <laughs> Our school library had a few old books on video games that they had picked up in the early 80s. And I remember, I, so of course I checked these things out. Mm-hmm. And some were kind of basic. You know, they were okay. There was one called The Winner's Book of Video Games. It was written by an author named Craig uh, Kuby. And he was, that was the first time I'd read a book. First of all, he had a, a real wry sense of humor, so it was kind of fun. But he didn't just talk about the games and the strategy. He talked about how well this game did in Playmeter magazines, earning charts, and how this game was the first to do this, and how this, he talked to the creator of this game, the creator of this game, and a champion on this game, and I was like, wow, they're talking, he's talking to champion players, and game designers, and company founders, and the companies themselves, he was describing where some of these companies were located, and it's like, there's a whole other thing to this. Mm-hmm. So I became interested, as interested in learning as much as I could about that. Who made these things? Where were they? How good or bad did they do? How many did they produce of these units? I started wanting to know all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that translated to home. The Nintendo got hot. They've got a phone, a, a, a 1-800 number. I'd call that 1-800 number all the time. And ask them about games that were coming out. And all this other stuff. I mean, I was... I was subscribing the newsletters from every company that would send you one, and I was making phone calls, I was getting all the magazines. 
I wanted to be that fountain of information, not really for other people, but for myself. It kind of kids at school started wanting to, like, hey, what's this or what's this or what's coming? And so I became, kind of started to become that for that. Mm-hmm. And um, so around that point in time, I'm starting to notice that I'm not finding these other older games as much as I used to anymore. And so that's where I started, at least kind of started getting in my head that, like, these things are harder to find. So if I get hold of something, I need to hold on to. Now, I was short-sighted at the time to not think about holding on to the stuff that was just a couple years old. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But held on to the stuff that was older than that when I would find it, and I started doing that. I wish I'd had the foresight to be like, man, these Super Nintendo games, same thing is going to happen. But I, at the time, I was like, I can get $20 credit at GameStop for this game. That's mm-hmm. now, you know, a $200 game. But, you know, <laughs> so that's where it kind of went, you know, kind of kept going with that. And then the Internet came along, and I started to find more people were interested in this stuff than I had thought. Yeah. And I started, it was in 1998. It was when I put up my first website. It was all about arcade history, and it had brief little articles. They weren't too in-depth. Just kind of telling the backstory of the games, attracting people into the site with you know talk of the games, but then they go and read the stories of the mm-hmm. games, and then that's when that really went into overdrive, because I started getting contacted by some of those programmers and designers who couldn't believe anybody remembered this crap, <laughs> and um, so you know that kind of just kind of kept going along, and I just I started researching, and it's like every year if I'm doing a chart, it's like and sort of research deeper because I would learn something new. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that what I would learn would be alarming enough to make me want to go, look, okay, now I'm understanding that this is a problem and that this is a problem. And we need more needs to be done in this and more needs to be done about that. And I don't see people volunteering. Yeah. So I'm kind of that, you know, do it myself if no one else is doing it kind of guy, I guess. So Absolutely. I mean... The dissemination of information has always been a problem. Um, I mean, video games weren't taken seriously by media outlets and news outlets for a long time. So really the only way you could get information on new games, I'm assuming, was by exactly what you did. You know, subscribing to newsletters and the one-off trade magazines that that would pop up every couple of years. And, I I mean, you have started collecting those magazines now. I had drawn a line with that industry crash. Yeah. To where in the late 80s and all through the 90s and even start of the turn of the century, when I would find publications and stuff prior to the crash, I would hold on to them. But the more recent stuff, I was really bad about. And would even, because again, hindsight is twenty twenty. At the time, I'm like, okay, well, no one's ever going to see the Nintendo the same way they saw the early arcades. <laughs> that was short-sighted. Where now it's realized history is made every day. And, you know, again, I learned the hard way on that one. Yeah. Some of those newsletters are very rare, very valuable, and very hard to find now that I had thrown in a dumpster in, you know, 1998. Yeah. <laughs> and I wish I hadn't done that. But, you know, I can't change it now. But Because a lot of people did that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people still do that. And that's kind of becoming the thing, is that the more that I look around at this, the more destruction I see in toffing stuff out that I see all the time. All the time. and Because we're finally getting to a point where some people, more people, value this stuff than they used to. But it's still not universal. Mm-hmm. It's not universal with anything. 
It's really not. I mean, people still trash old comic books. People still sometimes if they don't know, they don't care to know. They get a room, a, a room or an old house full of crap. And they're just fed up. They want to get rid of they all this get, shit. They, no, it, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And they'll do that through any means necessary. So they'll, uh, you know, that's what ends up becoming the fate. I, I had a couple of leads recently that ended with bad news just like that, where it was just tossed. It was just destroyed. Yeah. It was just scrapped. It was just whatever. And it's like... You know, and I have discussions all the time because now I want to say, because I mean, I was doing the arcade repair thing for a while, then some other things, and then I'd been collecting a lot of trade magazines. I hadn't so much got too many consumer ones. And uh, I want to say it was early 2015, a new game shop had opened up in town. I wanted to go check it out. And. Well, actually, before that, I can actually backtrack slightly. So it was late 2014, and I got a call from an old friend in high school uh, that I knew in high school. And he worked for the city of Garland, and he worked for the waterworks. And so he'd go around and check the meters and check the hydrants and all that sort of thing each day, and the trash pickup would always be, you know, a block away from him. They kind of would go on a thing. So he walked, and he, up by the curb are all these comic book boxes. So he's like, someone's throwing out a bunch of comic books. I want to look at this. They're actually old video game boxes. All pre-crash. Oh, my gosh. Atari and Television, ColecoVision. And, I mean, most of them were mint. Like the actual boxes? The boxes. The boxes, the cartridges that had come in. And he asked the woman, she's like, just, I've just thrown them out. My late husband, he died in, like, the late 80s. These were his. I'm cleaning this stuff out and getting out of here. And he didn't know what to do with them, so he contacted me. And then some of them were boxes for some of the rarest games on any of those consoles. Wow. Um, based on the price tags and stuff, it looks like her late husband had driven around during the crash and was buying as many of these games on super, super clearance as he could, you know, opening them carefully, carefully folding the boxes and carefully putting in. Apparently all the games and stuff were long gone. And collectors from all over the world yeah. complete their collections from that and... Literally, that was moments. That was a block away from being destroyed. That stuff was almost almost thrown out. Six hundred and thirteen boxes, and they were almost thrown out. That close. So, with that in my mind, and I'm kind of not processing it the way I need to yet. So, early 2015, I'll walk into this local game store that just opened up, and they got all, they had opened up partially, but they had games and they had comics. They bought a massive comic collection and a bunch of old video game magazines. They priced them at a couple bucks a piece. A lot of them were worth a lot more than a couple bucks a piece, and yeah. I didn't have any of them. I mean, I'm coming out with just boxes of them. And I was like, it's almost like by fate. Like, okay, well, I just got a whole bunch of these, and I'm looking through them, and I'm re- relearning things or seeing things for the first time that makes me go, how is this not known about more? Why is this not a bigger deal? Or this is different than what I hear online or whatever. So I was like, all right, I'm going to kind of listen on this. Thinking about the boxes, and then I stumbled across this. Maybe this is fate. Yeah. I need to start really expanding, you know, instead of doing this one small thing, let me expand this into this bigger thing. And everyone's like, well, you do game stuff. You want to do games and games and games. And I'm still at that point going, I'm looking online. There's enough people that are doing the games. There's enough people doing that sort of thing. Um, let me just focus on the publications and the media and that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. 
But I was wrong again there too. So <laughs> that started with me kind of poking around and asking people. And I found this guy who knew a guy who buys old abandoned storage units out in California. Mm-hmm. He's like, I think he has some of that stuff. So he referred me to him. And he didn't have magazine stuff, but he had games. And he had 3DO games. He had stuff like that. And made a pretty good deal. I knew one of the, some of the 3DO games in there were kind of rare. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll, pick, I'll, I'll, I'll pick this up. I don't know what I'll do with it. Maybe I'll resell it, maybe this or that. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I couldn't pass it up for the price. Yeah. And found development copy games in that lot. And one of them was for a Japanese RPG that was ported over. And for people who don't know what development copies of games are, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, in, usually something that... It was pre-production. Sometimes it was internal. It was an unfinished build. Sometimes they were advanced copies that would be sent to the press, which sometimes would vary from the final. Sometimes they'd be identical, but they would have different things on them. This particular one had a thing on the back saying, 3DO University, developer trainer copy. I could find nothing online. I went to 3DO collector groups who were all like, we don't know. I had just had some email conversations with Trip Hawkins, the founder of EA and the founder of a 3DO company, mm-hmm. going, I'll just ask Trip, I guess, you know, like, right? <laughs> I have the ability to do that. And he informed me of what it was and he, how rare of a bird this was. And that was kind of this amazing thing because it's like I had to go to the founder of it to even find out what it was. And he didn't understand how it even got out of there or how it, you know. That's amazing. Like, take care of that. He said that. Take care of that. Take care of that. It's like, okay. So this is still kind of in my thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, there's a thing going on at my kid's school. And, you know, it's bring stuff. You know, people bring stuff to donate, clean stuff out, recycle, all kinds of things like that. And some people have brought video games. So I'm like... Well, what are you going to do with those? Well, they're, they're probably just going to get scrapped. No. So, no, without revealing too much of what happened in there, that led to me going to a place that had just giant boxes of video game consoles and stuff oh that gosh. people were disposing of. They were going to get rid of them. They were going to go away. I bought them. I was like, uh-uh, no. I bought, I bought them all. Like, no. <laughs> and he lined them all up on the sidewalk, took a picture, saying all of these were about to be destroyed. And I started looking into that more, and I started finding that that's actually a lot more prevalent in the modern day than I had realized. That a lot of consumers are still just throwing this stuff out, because I started going around more and getting just near misses. I started going... Doing something I hadn't done in years, start going to thrift stores again, start going to yard sales again, looking for games, and I kept getting talked about how okay, well, we threw that stuff out, or we got rid of that, or I would find some more stuff, and so it just kind of kept building. Then I met a former developer, veteran developer, through a friend, mm-hmm. and he heard, he was told they were telling him about what I was doing, and he's like. I've got like all kinds of stuff in the attic. You're welcome to. It's this old work stuff to me. I don't. I'm not nostalgic. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, okay, I'll go finally go by his place, and he has all these boxes, and it's some amazing stuff. And I'm like, are you sure? You know, he's like, just take it. Just, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's gonna. It's sat up there for 20 years. It's gonna sit up there till I die. And my family, who's never cared about, probably gonna throw it out. 
So I'd rather you have it. And that's where I found unreleased prototype games. Uh, oh, wow. One, four different builds of Akira for the Game Boy, which was considered a lost game. There hadn't even been a photograph of that version of the game. It never got finished and released. People thought it would never turn up. I turned it up. Well, some other games that nobody had ever heard of, and then some games that had come out. Wow. And so it's like now it's like, okay, now and I, now I'm, I'm more and more starting to get out and I'm finding Nintendo games that have been forgotten in barns, and I'm finding, you know, rare games sitting in junk piles that, you know, in people's, you know, garages and attics and stuff that they're just going to get rid of. And I just, it all kind of started clicking more and more to where it's like, I kind of feel, I wish, or I wish it had clicked fully sooner. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, man, this has been an epidemic for a while. This has been going on for a while. I was short-sighted enough to assume that most people, when they got tired of these things, were putting them in their attics or their garages or taking them to the Goodwill or whatever. No, the majority of them were and still are just throwing the stuff out. Some people don't believe me when I say it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any less true. Mm -hmm. So I've shifted gears now into doing that. And, like... Especially if somebody's like, oh, we got this, we don't want it, we're moving, we're cleaning out, or whatever, you know, and it's, it's even the common stuff, it's keeping that stuff above ground from getting, from getting tossed out or getting turned into something stupid like a lamp. And, but every so often, some of the stuff that's turning up and stuff is like those prototypes are like really special items that may have been lost forever if I hadn't if I hadn't managed to get hold of them. And you have people calling you now to tell you, hey, I've got this stuff that I think you'll appreciate. Yeah, sometimes. And you know, um, anyone has anyone notable given you a call? Well John Newcomer was one. Oh well, there you go. He he, uh, he was cleaning out some stuff and he found a prototype marquee for a game called Power Up Baseball. It had never been released. Uh, they'd only made a few test copies, and it didn't test well enough, and he found it, and he's like, I want to give this to you. It's a better hands with you than it is with me. This, he believes this may be the only more surviving one. I found somebody else years ago had turned up a, a marquee for the game that actually is different than this one, which even John didn't understand. You know? <laughs> but he thinks that one may be a previous, an earlier one, a pre-production one, because it didn't have the Major League Baseball logo on it. Oh. didn't have the Chicago Cub on it. Um, so maybe that was like the original thing and somehow that got out. What I got is one that was on one of the prototype marquees from like five or so machines that they placed around Chicago. Mm-hmm. Didn't test very well. They said, because this was at the time they had NBA Jam and NFL Blitz, that sort of stuff out. Let's go with baseball. Problem is, and NFL, NBA, those are timed. Mm-hmm. And you can make that time or baseball can't really do that without changing the rules too much. So people were dragging them out. It wasn't making money fast enough. There was just some things that weren't going to work, so they scrapped it. Oh, okay. So that's happened. I've had uh, a, de- a former developer contact me recently. It's like, what's your address? And I'm like, why? He's like, I found some stuff in the garage. Wow. I just want to send it to you because I'm just going to throw it out. You know, and I that's opened somebody it up. who's actually making it. Well, and I opened it up, and, and the first thing in there I saw in there was a plaque from Playmeter magazine given to American Technos in 1991 
an award for best dedicated arcade game of the year given to the WWF WrestleFest game, mm -hmm. which was a favorite of mine. But nonetheless, that was the actual award plaque given to them by Playmeter. And somehow, when Techno shut down, somehow it came home with him. And then it's covered in dust and stuff. And even though he shipped it to me, covered in dust and all that. Uh, so things like that are starting. And, and it's like, you know, this is stuff that they have stories. It's all part of this tapestry. And, yeah, we can tell stories all day long. That's cool. I mean, and, and if you get information, yeah, that information can always be shared. But those physical artifacts, whether there's stuff like those prototypes or that plaque or whatever... Or they're just common stuff, just like you're running a mill N64 or a Pac-Man machine. Those, as many of those need to survive as possible because people are visual by nature. Mm -hmm. Okay, even you, it doesn't even matter, kid or adult. You give them a book with pictures in it, they're going to take the information in more than they are if it's just words. Um, and, you know, it gives them an ability to see that. People understand that with anything else. They understand rock and roll history. They understand sports history now, movie history. I mean, Archie Bunker's chair is at the Smithsonian, you know, so it's Muhammad Ali's boxing gloves. Those artifacts are important. And video games have lagged behind that, where there's even still people in the space right now who actually throw me shade over this, because they're like, they, they, they claim they love video games, but they're like, well, they made so many of these. <laughs> and so it's who cares if somebody mods one or throws it out or whatever, who cares? They don't understand that those games are more than the ROMs. They're the artwork that goes with it. There's the instruction manual, the case, the cartridge, the console. Everything about that is part of that. But they also don't understand it. Just no matter how many were made, it's how many survived. Yep. They don't make them anymore. Right? I guess the environment goes to the same thing. And not that this is as important as the environment, but that's why you have species that go extinct. And animals can, you know, mate. Mm -hmm. You know, you, Nintendo games can't. You know, they're gonna once they're gone, they're gone, and it can happen. They made two hundred thousand copies of Action Comics number one, first appearance of Superman. There's like twenty something known left, original ones now. Mm -hmm. More recently, when I was a kid, you couldn't go down the street without the road being full of Volkswagen Beetles, and they made that's like thirty three million Volkswagen Beetles. For a long period of time, road used to be filled with them. You, don't see, you see them once in a while, mm -hmm. but you drive down the street now, you don't see them very often. I didn't see a single one the whole trip from Denton all the way down here to Houston. <laughs> I didn't see a single one that entire trip. Road used to be full of them, mm -hmm. and it's because people used them until they weren't useful anymore, or they broke down, or whatever, and they got rid of them. And yet there's people that are starting to collect those. So it used to be so common. Yeah. There used to be so many of them. And now there's not. People are starting to realize and starting to collect them and restore them, which even just 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have sounded ludicrous with those. Well, that's where we are now with video games. And the sad thing, the thing that gets me on it, is that I, I'm busting my ass doing this. This is almost 24-7. I'm almost not getting any days off because... Any days I try to do that, or I plan to have one, I have a lead come up, or something comes up, and I go do that, and then all the other work kind of go wraps back around. Well, what are you supposed to do? Somebody gives you a call, hey, I've got this stuff, or I'm going to throw it away. What well, because who else is going to come? And that's the thing with that. There's so few people that are actively trying to preserve this stuff versus how many just consider it disposable stuff. Yeah. And 
and that includes not just the general consumers, but a lot of people that are within the hobby and within the gaming communities that don't respect this stuff to the level I feel yeah. they should. Some of them are older, so they can't get it around their head, I think, that this thing they used to see so much of has dried up in supply. Mm-hmm. And some are younger, and they don't stop and understand that, you know, they or they, or they just don't know the information. What... Here's an alarming one that I got was I talked with somebody a little while back who used to work for Funko Land as a higher up. Mm-hmm. Funko Land is one of the many companies that got assimilated into GameStop. In the mid to late 90s, Funko Land was choking on Nintendo Entertainment System games. Nobody wanted to buy them. Nobody was interested in them. They, were, they had too many. They couldn't re-merchandise them to other outlets because they were used product. What do you think they did with them? You think they stuck them in a warehouse like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Nope. They destroyed them. They destroyed them. He was telling me straight up and down, rows and rows and rows and rows of shelves of full of Nintendo product was destroyed. They couldn't sell it. They had to clear that warehouse space. They destroyed it. Wow. So a significant amount of it got destroyed just right there because Funko Land was so popular because people could take their old games there and trade them in for new stuff. Cool. And then, so, where do you think a lot of that stuff went? And I already found out that their store policy at the time was if it came with the original box and manual, it was to throw out the box and manual. What? Because they wanted to put it into their own sleeve with their own little card, and the box took up too much shelf space. So throw that out. Wow. So Funko Land, as cool as it was, is responsible for a significant amount a really unmeasurable amount, because it's not like we have statistics to look at, of this stuff being thrown thrown out in the strip. That's just one swath of it right there. Blockbuster did the same thing. Some blockbusters would take it, put it on clearance, put it in a bin. But when the bin was full and they had too much, they'd destroy it, or the stuff in that bin didn't sell, they'd destroy it. Wow. I mean, it's just what it is. And so learning that fun colon one was like, whoa. I didn't even think about that. I remember when that stuff went out of the store. I didn't think that it was sent off to death, but that's what it was. And learning that sort of thing has started to make me realize that when you see something old like that, it is a survivor. It's what has survived this long. And I think anyone who's a fan of this stuff should want it to keep surviving. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely come back to that. But I want to talk a little bit about the things that you've done in addition too. I mean, because it, it seems like a lot of your video game history, the preservation, has all kind of been a byproduct of your interest. Um, but you were involved with the U.S. National Video Game Team, and we have actually never really talked about that at, at any great length. So I'm really interested to learn about how you got started working with them and, and, and what it has kind of turned into now. Well, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to say working with, because uh, it is a really interesting story. The U.S. National Video Game Team when I first learned about it was in the later 80s. And it started with seeing uh, Don Nowroot and Perry Rogers, two members at the time, were doing Atari TV commercials. Of course, my first reaction was like, a U.S. national video game team? What is that? <laughs> um, and they were doing such good stuff at that point in time that well, they showed up on a That's Incredible episode. And they have seal of approval started showing up on some packages. They... Started a magazine, Electronic Gaming Monthly. They put out these video cassettes with they gave secret tips and all these types of things. They were everywhere. 
And it was that was the first I think the first time as a kid that I was that I realized that wow, you can actually be like a video game expert, video game personality, whatever, and make a living at that. Yeah. That's kind of wow. That's amazing. The first time I really thought, wow, you could do that. Um, we even started in middle school our own little group that was kind of based on the U.S. National Video Game Team. <laughs> we called ourselves the experts because we were like the kids in school that could beat all of the games and, and whatever. It didn't last very long, but still, it was kind of based on that. So uh, by as fast as they came and were all over the place, they were gone. You didn't hear from them anymore, except they were in the, ma- the name was in the masthead of Electronic Gaming Monthly, and then that faded away. And I probably didn't learn until, I don't know, maybe 2004 or five that it had started sooner than that, back in 1983, and it had gone, it, it started at one part with a tour called the Electronic Circus, which bombed, and Walter Day took the concept off of that and reformed it, and then he was with it for a few years, and then it was taken over by Steve Harris, Jeff Peters, who then did all this other stuff, and then it had kind of faded away. It was literally a case of me being frustrated that no one remembered that later 80s era that I just talked about. It was such a big influence on me, such a big influence on some other people, like Chris Tang. It was a huge influence on him. All you ever heard about was this very early part because they talked about it so much. You didn't hear anything about this other part. About the only thing you could find online about it was some old Sean Baby article that was so disrespectful and sarcastic that... What is Sean Baby? Sean Baby was a he, he was a guy who thought he was something that wrote video game stuff for a long time. And, oh, okay. But he never was serious. He was always trolling the topics or being, you know, anyway. Uh, he had a whole other set of stories for that. I've never met him, but I've been told stories by a lot of people. So, so I was frustrated with that, and I may remember asking Walter at one point, got a very noncommittal answer. So go back a few years, and I was writing feature articles for uh, G4 at Sci-Fi Games. Okay. Which is owned by NBC Universal. Um, And I was reviving an old G4 TV show in written form called Icons. Only my version of Icons was not... That one was talking to people who were already known luminaries, like Nolan Bushnell, people like that. I was going back and trying to hunt down and talk to people that I knew... From my early interest, but time had kind of forgotten them, and I wanted to get those stories retold so people could relearn them. Yeah. And so two of them were one was with Don Narrett, and one was just Jeff Peters. And I talked with both of them at length. They were both kind of sad and frustrated that they did all this amazing stuff and nobody really seemed to remember it. And they were really wanting to talk, and I was really amazed by the stories they were telling. So. And those articles did really well, which made me feel good. And they, they liked them, and it made me feel good. And I was talking to uh, my friend Tim McVeigh, who was one of the original members of the team, uh, the subject matter for Man vs. Snake, that mm-hmm. documentary film. And somehow the conversation led to a few things, and I'm just like, you know, I'm kind of interested about like the ownership lineage, this and that. So I went, we lit and looked it up. And we saw the same thing, that our trademark registration had been filed in 1990 by Jeff Peters. Mm -hmm. According to the federal government, the name was considered dead. No one owned it. Really? And it hadn't been used in so long. There was a very brief chat about doing it in 2005. 
but nothing came of it. So after 10 years of nothing like no usage, no marked provable usage, so it was considered completely dead. Well, I'd always, I was always upset and depressed that that history hadn't been told. Yeah. <clears throat> what better way to uh, control that narrative and get that done than to just go get that trademark? Absolutely. So that's what we did. We went around, did our due diligence. I talked to a friend of mine who's a trademark attorney for cor- on a corporate level. and saying, yeah, it's dead. We found precedent, legal precedent. I talked to Jeff Peters about it, got his blessing. And, we, yeah, we went and, and got the trademark. And it took a while, but the government went through and they looked through everything that had ever been legally filed, usages and bank accounts, all kinds of that, due diligence. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, they said the only person that could probably just dis- might dispute it would be Jeff Peters, who gave the blessing. No one else really has a legally binding claim to ownership of the name. It's like it's like a live football fumbled on the football field. Whoever okay. picks it up. So Another thing it. you kind of stumbled upon, huh? So we got it. And the whole <laughs> reason I grabbed that was mostly so that we now could tell the full history, not just that one little portion. But the entire history, to where everybody that was ever involved with it can have their stories told. The full history of it can finally be told. Because no one else, if anyone else tries to do it, I actually could shut them down. You know, I'm <laughs> not saying that I would, not saying that that was the idea, but it's like, what a better way to preserve, you know, it's great to preserve a prototype, get hold of it. It's great to preserve this game over here, get hold of it, preserve the team name. Well, let me get hold of it. Yeah. And so the idea is for us to be doing that and slowly, it's a slow burn, you know, get it reintroduced into the public knowledge, into the public consciousness so they understand where it came from and what it did. Absolutely. And then as we kind of at the same time are slowly building up a resurgence of the same concept in the modern day. Okay. So that's how that came about. It literally is part of those preservation efforts because... It was dead, and anybody who might have tried to stake a claim if they had realized that, I have absolutely zero faith that they would have done that full length of history. I think they would have just focused on just just the era they were involved in and not the full 15-year run of it in that deserves all of it, and everyone deserves to be remembered. It's a very big problem. Um, Um, And maybe without naming names, uh, we can talk about that at length because... I mean, it's not just video game history that that struggles with this issue, yeah. but you have run into a lot of a lot of interesting situations with with, with your finding of uh, physical print magazines that that debunk well known popular. Yeah. Well, history. I mean, I'll name a few because it's because it's not a slam. Some people yeah. take this, and as, I don't think so either. I just some, don't want you to feel well, like some you people had to. do. Some people think that. Oh, he's trying to discredit these people because he doesn't like them, or it's nothing like that. It's a case of I just want the proper people to get the proper credit, and I don't think in most cases there is a malicious attempt by any of these people by any means. Absolutely. I, 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 for the most part, I don't think that's the case. But just think about this from realistically. They, they say history is told by the winners, and in this case, it's not really it wasn't a war, so it's not really a winner. But it's a case of history is told by pretty much those who go unopposed, all right? Um, And this is not a knock on them. I don't have a problem with Walter Day. 
we have disagreements and issues and I think irreconcilable differences of opinion that he seems to take more personally than I feel he should because I don't mean them personally. It's a case of where I believe he's trying to take credit or at least letting other people give him credit for things that he didn't necessarily do, which is actually lessening the impact of what he really did accomplish. Because he has, his impact on the community is great. Yeah, but what he accomplished, it seems to be completely misunderstood and he's there's people that are pushing to credit him with the creation of esports and organized competitive. No, not true. It's not even <laughs> close to true. And I can back it up with a lot of documentation. Um, and and so that's that's the type of thing where it's just like, no. It's but it's not to knock him or discredit him. It's a case of we need to get the rest of this stuff told right, and we need to do it now while a lot of these people are still around who can confirm information, can speak on this. And I tried to tell this to Walter directly, I think, the last time we had a conversation, which did get a little heated. Uh-huh. Um, I told him, I was like, Walter, I feel that you are too close to your own history to be able to look at it objectively. And I think that's the case with a lot of this. Nolan Bushnell, same way, but he doesn't get mad at me. But <laughs> it's the same way. Of course he's going to think... He's going to see his impact as being something different than other people will because he's too close to it. He's involved in, in, in he the can't, fact, yeah. He can't possibly be impartial about his own place in history because it was his. Everyone is always going to be biased about what belonged to them or what they were directly involved in. History is about perception. Yeah, I mean, if it, it's true of anything. If you go ask the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who the greatest football player of all time is, he's probably going to name one of his guys, one of his former guys. You go ask the coach of the San Francisco 49ers the same question, you're going to get a different one. There's usually going to be a bias there. There's going to have to be. Uh, You see this with all kinds of things. So I think from my seat, I was far enough back. I was the kid consuming all of this stuff when it was new, the groom to the teenager that was not just consuming all of this stuff when new, but was still reflecting on where he came from and kept going up into the adult and, you know, and into the father and all that stuff that's still consuming everything that's going on and reflecting and attaching it to everything I've seen along the way without being too close to any one of these particular things. Absolutely. I wasn't too close to, you know, you talk to people that worked for Atari, and they're going to have opinions about Atari that may be different than what somebody that's back watching it. You know, it's a case of, you know, you put my hand up here, I'm not going to see as much detail as if I pull back. Yeah. It's too close to me. And that's where I feel Walter's law is, to be honest with you, because there's things that he either lets people credit him for, or he claims as he being the genesis of it, and then here come things that it doesn't line up, and that's a problem. He claims that he called all the manufacturers in spring of 82, uh, and all of them said, they did, one, that they didn't track, none of them tracked records, and two, they would all start referring people to him. Neither of those is accurate. Atari was tracking records on all of their arcade games up to two years prior to Walter doing it. 
And, and not every one of those manufacturers was referring to him. I've got people who have letters from Valley Midway and Williams Electronics. Well after that, in 82 and 83, from those companies that were declaring those people as holding records or being the champions or being the first accomplishings on those games, they never contacted Walter Day. And for people who maybe don't know who Walter Day is, because there's a good chance I didn't know who Walter Day was until we had really started working together. Um, I mean, what does he do and who, you know, what is he known for? Well, he was the co-founder of Twin Galaxies. Again, piece of history that's important. He was not the founder. He was the co-founder of the Twin Galaxies Arcade. It was a small Iowa town in the early 80s. He opened in late 81. And in early 82, he thought it was interesting. He read a Time Magazine article about a player named Steve Jurassic who had set a world record on Defender. And that caused someone in that town that wanted to go to use to his arcade to break that record. And so when the kid did, Walter called him Williams Electronics, whoever he talked to on the phone said they didn't know if it was a world record or not because they didn't really track that. Okay. So he's like, okay, well, we'll we're going to declare him that. And then he says he called all the other manufacturers and did the same thing and kind of just decided, well, I'll do doing all this. So he was tracking high scores on video games during that whole peak of time and set up tournaments and was a go-to guy. And then he went away for a long time. He came back in the late 90s and originally seemed like he was kind of restarting this as a memory lane type of thing, but then revived it and turned it into a continuous thing. Um, and his involvement over the years has yeah, it's been all over the place. It changes from day to day from whatever it is. So, But now he's going around and going on tour and doing these events and all that stuff and proclaiming himself to be the father of esports and claiming that he started organized competitive video game playing and you know basically taking claim for a multi-million, multi-billion dollar industry that... It's continuing to but from my seat, I cannot find those links to give him that credit in anything I found. I believe esports would have happened the way it happened, with or without anything he did. There's evidence to show that he did never. He was never as big or famous or impactful as they claim. He had notoriety, but none of their events drew thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people. They drew a couple hundred people at most. Um, he was not even the only one that was doing those leagues and those competitions back there, and he was not the first. There was a company called Silco West in 80 and 81 that was doing a lot of that stuff. And they had a, a newsletter and a hotline you could call and send your scores into them. They had wow. a van painted, and they did a lot of stuff with the Southland Corporation or 7-Eleven to run different competitions and stuff like that. There's even a picture from 1981 a Silco West event where a guy in a striped referee outfit was adjudicating somebody's competitive attempt on a game. Hmm. I don't believe that's coincidence. Walter is a good-hearted guy for the most part, and he means very well. His 1998 book is different. He tells the story different there than he tells the story now. His 1998 book, he was honest enough to sit there and say that this was all a shot at getting publicity to his arcade, which there is nothing wrong with that. It's called a business. It's a business. <laughs> it was a PR stunt. He calls some of these things angles and stunts and stuff like that because he's talking about how he needs, he's struggling with the arcade. Yeah. 
there's nothing wrong with that. But now it tries to make it sound like this benevolent, I created this for the players. and I did, No, you did not. It does not line up historically. Factually, that doesn't line up. And that is the type of fight that, and it is a fight, because there's people that fight, push back, going, you're trying to discredit him, what do you have, I don't, I'm just trying to say that, because what I believe Walter created, and a few other historians believe this same thing, is that he he gave players a, a lasting identity to a level that hadn't existed before. Before that, okay, somebody said, they played, you know, Lonnie J. Cancian played, Asteroids for I think 63 hours on a quarter and set a world record. It was a big deal for as long as Asteroids was popular. Then no one cared anymore. It wasn't a thing anymore. No one wanted to talk about this player anymore. No one wanted to talk about the accomplishment anymore. It was over. Eric Jenner and uh, Aksu Han won. They were men's and women's tournaments for the Atari World Championships in 1981 on Centipede. It's a big deal. Eric Jenner, especially, was a, all over the press for a, a, over a year for that win. But as soon as Centipede started to fall out of favor, no one really cared anymore. Mm-hmm. What Walter did was created an ongoing thing where it's like, okay, this person is the recognized world record holder. It's kind of flawed in the sense that you had millions of people playing these games and dozens of some people sending in scores. So it's the highest submitted or highest known or whatever. But it gave those players... In identity by like okay this is the world champion on this game and yeah. this is their feat and this is their score and it would be ongoing whether the game was still popular or not was irrelevant because that data was still in there and anyone could go back and continue to challenge that sort of thing um, that is what he accomplished I think it's a very important thing I don't think that's the credit he gets for that because before that you know they were forgotten accomplishments his work ensured that they would not be forgotten accomplishments. Absolutely. He was pivotal in, in showing companies and the press that the players themselves could be marketable people, could be interesting people. That's what he accomplished from my perspective. And that's nothing to turn your nose on. No, at. but it's not what he gets touted as doing. He's touted as creating, you know, completely different thing. What he did in esports, there's a very, very thick wall between the, what the two of them even are, and one doesn't go with the other one. Well, and, and I feel like that runs the risk of all of those other voices being completely silenced. The chance for us to really get an idea of what the scene was on early esports. People that, that should be credited for the creation of of an industry that is continuing to evolve and, and won't stop continuing to evolve. Those people are essentially forgotten now. Yes. And 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 that's where the problem comes in. Yeah. Because when you start getting into that, or I could go on to Billy Mitchell and the fact that there's things he's credited with doing first or holding for X amount of time that are it's actually just doesn't check out. He he got the Donkey Kong Junior World Record in 1982. And according to movies and according to all this stuff, he held it for 20-something years. Not sure. Twin Galaxies recognized not one, not two, not three, but four different scores higher than his in the successive months and months after he originally had his score published. They were published in magazines. And then that those scores disappeared when the Guinness, the, the Twin Galaxies had scores in the Guinness books in the 80s, where, by the way, Billy was one of the people who sent the scores into Guinness. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> I think there's questions that could be asked there, though. 
and then the database was lost. And when the when they rebuilt started rebuilding it in the late '90s and early 2000s, they were going through these books and magazines. They went through those books and magazines, but those scores still didn't make it in. So it's not a case of well, he's trying to discredit Billy. I think we should ask some questions, but the more important thing here is that the accomplishments of the people who beat his score and were recognized for beating his score. In other places. Their history <laughs> is lost. They never got their due. They never got their credit. So when someone is getting credit, whether they took it or it was given to them or something was, however it happened, if someone's giving credit for something, it, it's not proper due credit to them. It's not just a case of them benefiting from that. It's a case of somebody else's history or credits recognition is not getting seen. Because they, I, maybe they just weren't pushy enough or, well, or in some weren't cases, vocal enough. Or, or, you know. or there were some shenanigans possibly. It's a case of, you see this not that long ago there was a push to get uh, uh, Bill Finger recognized along Bob Kane as the co-creator of Batman. That fight finally got won. You watch Gotham now, and this season, saying based on characters created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. They didn't even say that last season. Bob Kane was getting full credit for all that time, and it wasn't just his. Bill Finger was not getting his. Same, Superman had a similar thing that got fixed a long time ago. The history of McDonald's. Ray Kroc did not found McDonald's. But... He called himself the founder of McDonald's. Yeah. Right? Uh, there's a whole movie about that talks about that now. And it, it's, you know, called the founder. And it's, a, it's amazing to see it. Because it, it's exactly this type of thing. Someone else is getting credit. That credit isn't just benefiting him. Or benefit, not only did it just benefit him, but it came at the cost of something to other people. I believe the reason that Walter and Billy and those people are as well-known, quote-unquote, because they're not celebrities, they're not at Oscar parties, they're not, you know, they have some notoriety, but they're not, my idea of a celebrity is if, you know, Extra and People Magazine is talking about you, and you're a guest on The Tonight Show or something like that, you're a celebrity. Yeah. Right? That, to me, is what a celebrity is. Anything below that is just someone that might be well-known. But I think the reason why they're so well-known is because they came out and they've spent all this time over the years promoting themselves and putting themselves out there. Again, I have nothing. I... I'd be the last person in the world that should complain about something like that. But I think that's why they're known. It's kind of a squeaky wheel. Where someone like Ross and Stovall, who was in the Tonight Show chair in the mid-80s, by the way, as a guest, as a kid. He was the first syndicated video game reviewer in American history. Really? And he did it when he was a child. He was 10 years old when he started. And he was in all these newspapers, and he was on That's Incredible. He was on CBS this morning. He was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in the guest chair with Ed McMahon sitting on his one side, being interviewed by Johnny Carson. Walter and Billy and those guys never did that. And yet, I could go down to the event downstairs right now, and I could ask everybody in that room who Ross and Stovall is, and I might, might get a couple people that do. You could ask me, and I would tell you until this moment I had never heard that name before. And the reason why Rawson isn't as well-known is because... You know, early mid '90s or so, and he went off to college, and he just kind of pulled back. He should be as well known as anybody. That's an amazing thing he did. You know, Bill Kunkel and Arnie Katz and Joyce Worley, the founders of Electronic Games Magazine, should have freaking statues up in their name at every one of the every video game reviewer and websites offices. They were the first that saw video games as something 
important enough to have its own publication in the United States. Absolutely. They're not as well known as they should be. They're just not. Um, there is something to be said for outgoing and promotional things. Uh, Nolan Bushnell's a hero of mine, but Ted Dabney was his co- was the co-founder with him. Nolan is the guy that's as well known because Nolan is Nolan. Nolan is boisterous and proud and walks into the room, and if you don't notice him, he's going to make sure you do. And, you know, he's that alpha. You're going to see him. But he doesn't deserve all the credit just because of that. That's why. Yeah. So that's where I think it is. So it's where I think it's important for people like me to make sure people like Ross and Stovall or Eric Jenner or Steve Jurassic are as celebrated as anyone else because what they accomplished was very tangible, but it got forgotten. Because here's the thing with the Internet. The Internet's still not that old. (laughs) The Internet is not the whole of human information. The Internet is the whole of what humans have put into it. For now. For now. (laughs) Some stuff people just haven't put into it yet. Some stuff people put the wrong stuff into it, and it proliferated, and it turned into something bigger than what it should have ever been. Or, like, what happened with you? You started your first website on video game history in the 90s, and it's gone. Yeah. Well, I actually do still have copies of it. But the point being is that, yeah, sometimes that stuff can go away, and the hard copy stuff will last forever. But then people are throwing away the hard copy stuff. Yeah, so that's it's... the other problem. Well, <laughs> that's the other problem with it. Well, because we're about to have an epidemic with that sort of thing right now. Um, we're in this window here. And this is part of the reason why I'm ramping my stuff up and other people. I'll mention Frank Cefali because he is doing some pretty good work in this space. I'll mention the National Video Game Museum in Frisco. I love what they're doing out there. Absolutely. We are anomalies. We are the exceptions, not the rule. We are the people who are trying to do this. We have already started to lose some of these pioneers. All right? We lost Steve Bristow, who was important to Atari. Always very kind to me. We lost him a couple years ago. We lost Ralph Bear, mm-hmm. the father of the consumer side of the industry. He's gone. We lost him. We lost uh, uh, Doug Smith, the creator of Load Runner, one of my favorite games ever, in a game that had the edit mode. The edit mode actually influenced people to go into game design. It was one of the first games to ever do that. And we lost him as I was actually trying to set up a feature interview with him. Wow. And I got the email letting me know he passed. Um, we have lost people like that. We've lost several people associated with Nintendo. And we've got a lot of guys that they're not young in springtime anymore. They're getting up there a little bit. And it's time for us to start thinking about this sort of thing. We're at a point right now where we still have a lot of these pioneers here that can give us information and give us that sort of thing. But even more importantly is what happens to their stuff, what happens to the things they've held on to when they go. That's the other concern, because if they have notes, they have even even just something as simple as sketches or production notes or yeah. anything can be a gigantic missing link, and they might have it sitting in a file and an and in, you know in a box in an attic, and they don't even know it's there. And so there's that concern as well: is what's going to start happening to this sort of stuff? We're going to start losing our pioneers. We're going to lose. We're going to have more casualties of that sort of stuff because sometimes the people who handle estates and that sort of thing don't know or care what they got. Yep. And anything can happen at any time as well. Uh, Ted Dabney had a house fire a couple years ago. He doesn't have anything left. His own words to me: all his old stuff from the early days of Atari that was in his house is gone. Wow. It's lost. 
we were down here where Hurricane Harvey, you know, plowed in, and there's people that lost stuff down here, rare stuff. There's we've been raging fires and out in California, around Silicon Valley, around uh, where a lot of these companies started, and I guarantee there's stuff that we don't know about yet lost. And while obviously that pales in importance to the importance of the human life and of lives affected, of course, I'm not, obviously not putting those in the same plane. Some of that stuff is, I guarantee, is gone. It's That's lost. the stuff that you end up coming across by chance in the future, you know? Well, let's say that 3DO University disc, <laughs> how it got out of there and ended up in the hands of someone who left it in the storage unit and a guy that bought the storage unit and then it ended up in my hands mm-hmm. and then I was able to identify what it was. It's like a whole chain of events. We're lucky that that turned up. Yeah. That guy could have looked at it, he could have chunked it out. Or somebody else could have bought that unit and didn't value it. Or someone else could have bought that off of them and thought, what is this? And stuck it on a vendor table at some thing and chucked the piece of paper out or whatever. It, it just, it's, that's by happenstance. Those prototypes that were in that attic, the Akira prototypes, right? A game that people, it was like one of the long lost things. There were people that couldn't believe it. And that was a great moment, by the way, because I actually was Facebook living. Because <laughs> I did. I had all this stuff laid out in my living room, and I was Facebook living because I didn't know what was in these boxes. Yeah. So I was at home and I was doing Facebook Live. Let's let's see what's in these things, and people were tuning in. And one of the guys tuning in is a big anime fan. And so yeah, I pulled out. I was pulling out prototypes, yeah. and I'm starting to identify them. And one of them was labeled Akira. And the guy, this guy was in the chat, was like, Scott, stop, stop. What does that say? says, Akira, plug it in. Put it in something. <laughs> so I went and got a Game Boy that I had sitting nearby. Yeah. And came and plugged it in there, and he freaked out. Like, there it is, live. This turned up. The title screen comes up. We start it. He's like, oh, my God. So we got multiple yeah. other Game Boy prototypes that are unmarked, and three more of them were Akira. And each, finally, the guy's just rubbing his hand across the keyboard in reaction. He can't, <laughs> he can't believe that. The, the, not, just, not one, but four builds of that turned up yeah. unexpectedly, and it, we discovered live what they were. Oh, my God. That is like, oh, my God. But I know in this, every time I get a high on this and I get excited about this, I come to realize that there's that much more of it that none of us are getting to. Because people don't know what we're doing yet, we haven't got to that stuff yet, and that's still a continuous issue right now, where we sit. If you could recommend something for people to do, if they come across something they think could be rare, they, they have a box in their attic, or what can people just do to, to aid in what you're doing? Well, I mean... You know, there's the selfish answer and there's the bigger answer. Well, because, <laughs> well, well you know, like I mentioned, Prince of Folly. I, I, I wouldn't say we get along. I think we, we, we both have the same kind of idea. I think we have slightly different philosophies. I feel like he wants to be the lead dog. And to me, I think everybody, I think I want to be seen as a peer. I don't want to be seen as a lead dog. So it's one of those things where it's like, I'd like if someone finds something like that for them to give me an email or a phone call. <laughs> but... From my seat, while I would like to be the person that has the honor of getting something like that and preserving it and taking care of it, as long as somebody that is going to do that with it gets hold of it, I'm good. I'd prefer it to be me for selfish reasons in a way because I love this and obviously I'm trying to build up 
what I want to be as a giant outlet for for a point of reference. It's like I, it's the best thing I can describe it. You remember that show Chuck? Yeah, I love that show. One of my favorite shows ever. I'm trying to build like the intersect for video games. You know, that's that's what I want to do that with. And the National Video Game Museum has a little bit of a different philosophy than me on that. Frank's philosophy is a little bit different as well, and he focuses a little bit more on one thing than I do on some things. But you know, if he gets something that I don't, I'm not going to get mad over it. It might maybe the other way around. But <laughs> like a good relationship with the National Video Game Museum with that, where Absolutely. I couldn't take on uh, Billy Joe Kane's arcade games. I could have. Billy came to me, and I could have said, "I'll take them." I don't have. They would have sat in a storage unit for how? Who knows how long? Yeah. Right. So I referred him over to the National Video Game Museum, where I would have liked them. The better place for them to go for that for what he wants them to be seen for, experienced for, was there. Absolutely. I'm not sure everybody would do it that way, but that's the way it works. At so, it's part of it is is just just having these discussions and stuff too, or looking around, or asking questions. Um, a lot of it's just awareness or a lack of it. Um, even with common stuff. Like, I just recently found a, uh, found out about a place that had destroyed a fairly uncommon old arcade game six months ago. Wow. They found out about what I do five months ago. So if they'd already known, I'd have got that phone call. That would have been rescued. Instead, they scrapped it. They put it out for the trash guys to come take off, fall off. So what are we going to do? Yeah. Right? It's gone. Exactly. It's, 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 it's done. What's done is done on that. Um. And that's that's kind of a big part of that is yeah. just getting that awareness and letting people know that there are these types of things, especially if people used to work in the industry. You know, I've got leads right now, so I'm not going to give specifics. <laughs> but I uh, there's one where I, I know where some a company had offices, and a lot of the people who used to work for that place in various roles still live sort of near it, <laughs> and believe they have things. But they never thought about this before. Yeah. Right? This wasn't something they thought about this before. And, and it's it's getting past, I think, also the challenge. Because go to any group, go to any YouTube, go to whatever. Is people see the value in some of these things, they'll see the monetary value. Yeah. Which, hey, I love it. I found a big stash of, you know, Super Nintendo stuff yesterday that I got for 30 bucks. Books out at 600-something. Yep. That's fun. I'm not going to lie. That's fun. <laughs> that's great. You know, that's fantastic. But even the games that don't have high book value still have a value. They have a historic value. So maybe bases loaded for the NES is only worth three or four bucks monetarily to someone that was a favorite game or that was an important game. That was That's childhood memories. That's Christmas. That's To me, that particular game was afternoons with my best childhood friend and we were actually, since the game didn't track stats, they didn't do that at the time it was handwriting stats and yeah. keeping track and figuring out tricks and sharing them with each other and you know, stuff like that, that's what that was anyway, I got a sneeze coming out here okay. <laughs> okay. I have another one, I knew I could do it but um but no, but that's the thing with that, so some of these game hunters, I guarantee it, have encountered things that have historical value 
that they ditched or left because they don't it didn't have monetary value yeah and that is a problem that is an issue because they might have been like okay well it's this is just some old thing or some old papers or whatever and because it's not worth a lot of money they ditched it or trashed it or whatever um, when I go to an event like this, I will go through the dealer areas. Obviously, I'm not looking for certain, because they're going to ask what's at least a fair market price or higher at yeah. those things. And I'm out hunting this stuff and getting it for far cheaper than that most of the time. But I'm looking for those anomalies that maybe those people don't realize have some historic value to them. Okay. Um, there was one, I wish I'd... I wish I'd bought them i don't know why i didn't to be honest with you i guess because it was this was two that was in 2011 and i wasn't thinking about it this year there's <laughs> a guy had um old midway uh, uh concept sketches of yeah. cabinet art and stuff like that he was selling at a table all bagged you know and, and they weren't cheap but they weren't ex- super expensive yeah right? and like he saw some monetary value that's those tremendous historical value something like that was down here today i bought all of them I'm still going to go through there and take a look and make sure that I'm not missing something that somebody doesn't understand has that bigger tangible value. And a lot of this is those old books and stuff like that. Because maybe that old book from 1982 on video games doesn't have a high price tag on Amazon or whatever. That information inside, though, might be a piece of information that is needed to continue research or to do new research or to give somebody... Or something the credit that they're not getting right now. Yeah, this interview because this is our first episode. Is is the importance of of recording the history and and, and looking at history that you feel like may already be recorded um, because of things like the power of baseball marquee or um, when we sat with John Newcomer and Warren Davis and they're talking about this game that they worked on. And, and them talking and, about and they, building the models to, to, to create... Well, and they the, seem to think that it was a neat concept. <laughs> right. And it was. they're talking about a great deal of passion. And guess what? There's not one scrap of information out there about it. There's not um, any physical artifacts that yeah. we know of that there might be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what depresses me more, to think that everything they did in, for that game has already been tossed out a long time ago. Or the idea that somebody is sitting on some stuff related to that game right now and they don't know that somebody is going to be interested in that or they don't care and then that's at risk. Because eventually they are going to clean out that attic or they're going to have a house fire or they're going to pass on and have an estate sale. I mean, like that's a bunch of old papers. Or just the models that John Newcomer... They yeah. put together by hand and painted. No, well, that's what it is. Because, <laughs> yeah, because we don't. That's 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 the bigger thing, and it's it, it takes a while. I mean, you know, if somebody finds a bat autographed by Babe Ruth, they know where to go with it, right? If somebody finds a jacket that belonged to Elvis Presley, there there's they know what to go where to go with it or they can put it out there and people will know but with video games it's still such a new concept to care about this sort of stuff that people won't necessarily know that yeah that's the big challenge like for what i'm doing which is why i recently kind of shifted and got behind what i'm doing instead of kind of being out in front of it 
is to kind of push that out there and try to create this knowledge of it. You know, and, and that there's people that are trying to do this. There's people that are trying to get these things and find these things. Another one I, I need to mention does a great job was mentioned by Brian earlier, which is Doc Mac. He does a great job in reaching out to these developers, and he's got things there that are rare, and he's taking care of them, and he's preserving them, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, because that stuff deserves to be preserved. And, you know, it, but how much more else? Even he can't get everything. There was in Chicago months back a prototype for a game called Wizard of War popped up on Craigslist out there in Chicago. The prototype was called Invisible Monsters. Mm-hmm. And somebody had some games in their house, and one was that, and they threw them up all, you know, a couple hundred bucks a piece on uh, Craigslist, and Doc didn't get it. Some guy got it and was trying to sell it on eBay for like eight grand, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's worth. You know, but he's seeing monetary value. That guy's probably not taking care of it. And, you know, he's, he's trying to flip it, which I don't care if someone does that with a copy of Mario Kart or something like that. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, I mean, that deserves to be preserved, but there's plenty of it out there. I don't think that the history of that game is going to ever be fully lost. The supply will continue to dwindle, but something like that needs to be in the hands of somebody. And so whoever had that, I wish, had contacted Doc. Or at least that was the closest guy. Again, for selfish reasons, I wish he'd contacted me. But I wish he'd contacted Doc or knew about what he was doing. Yeah. You know, and that, that lack of awareness is there all the time. I live in a relatively small-ish town. And there's people all over that town that don't know what I'm doing. There's plenty <laughs> that do. There's lots that don't. There was a stash of GameCube and N64 stuff less than a mile away. According to Google Maps, it was 0.9 miles from my front door. Earlier this year, they got thrown out when they were cleaning out this place. Got thrown out. Yeah. They didn't know about. They didn't know about me. They're less than a mile from me. They didn't know. And you know, sometimes too, there's even the case of uh, well, there's Paradigm Studios out in Farmers Branch, Texas. This was years and years and years ago, and they were a subsidiary of THQ, and they got their plug pulled one day. And they're like, you know, here's a banker's box. Fill it what you can and get out. Mm-hmm. All that other stuff, promo stuff, Lord knows what else, was left in there. And the guy who's taking over that office space did happen to call me. And I wish, I, in hindsight, I wish I'd gone back and forth until I got everything out of there. But I, I took as much as I could fit in my car, which wasn't much at the time. And um, that stuff was left behind. He saw no value. Wow. They're the people shut it down, pulled the plug, and just left it in there. Because so, to them it's a business. Right? Well, it, well and, and, and I understand it Absolutely. needing to be a business. But, I mean, it, you, you got to take care of your own history. And you got to take care of that sort of thing. And then, you know, there's and there's going to be some, too, that don't want to understand that, too. Um, like it was John Hardy told you and me this story <laughs> coming out of the restaurant out there. Yeah. And how he had found a... He actually just flat out dumpster dived because he found out that a bunch of stuff had just been thrown out from Absolutely. a game studio and found the disc that was a prototype build and it had a business card. He reached out to contact the guy and the guy was like, I'm glad no corporate espionage is alive and well. And Thank you for letting me know. So we're just going to destroy everything before we throw it in there now. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, man, 
you know, and just so yeah, it's, I'm hoping someday what'll happen. You know, and even if it happens in bits and pieces, because it, it, I think it's going to start taking a, sh a quantum shift to happen, where a game studio or a website or something is going to. Well, I can even cite one. I'm not going to name the website, and it's still not a dead deal. But I contacted one major video game website recently and talked with someone that's a friend of mine that works there. And she asked around, and turns out their policy is when they get review copies and press kits in, is once they're done reviewing the game, once the review is published, is to throw it out. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to some people. Who cares if this game that just came out two months ago has the thing thrown out? But in 20 years, they will. Super Mario Brothers was two months old at some point. Yeah, it was. And, but that's what it is. They threw it out. And this has happened. And I'm trying to convince them to be like, no. Like, let, let's calculate. Like, let's get you a, let's get a box. I'll even mm -hmm. send you the box. And when you get done with those, place them in the box. And when the box is full, I'll pay you to ship them to me. And I will preserve that stuff. Because some of those are going to vary from the final builds. Or they're going to have materials that have never released to the public related to the game. Those deserve to be preserved. They're getting thrown out. Or sometimes a company will come close to going gold and they'll send advanced copies out to get reviewed and then somebody wants to change something or they find a flaw or something and so they, they postpone the release and then later on the game that came out is different from the one that those thought. So they got, those, those reviewers got a build of a game that varies. Yeah. Um, I've got a few of those, but not very many. But I think one of them, I think I read. I've never, I haven't looked at it yet. I got a review, a, an advanced review copy of Ruler Rose wow. for the PlayStation Two, which is a pretty rare bird in production. I got a, a run, yeah, I got a review copy of it. If I understand, there's rooms in it that make the final versions. You know, somebody has pulled the code, which is great. I haven't really looked at what I got yet. I need to, but. Um, and like you're saying, at some point in time, Super Mario Brothers was two months old. And aside to that, I mentioned the U.S. National Video Gaming Team had founded Electronic Gaming Monthly, which a lot of people don't realize. That's a pretty important contribution. And eventually that faded away, and eventually Steve Harris sold EGM to Ziff Davis Publishing. Ziff Davis Publishing bought the name and the subscriber base the brand. They cared nothing about anything else that was in it. And I have told straight up from people who worked there at the time how they threw out all the old back issues. Oh, my God. They, destroyed, they threw out all the prototypes and review copies and the press kits. They threw all that stuff out. They brought out big dumpster containers and just threw it all out. And at the time, they're like, oh, who cares? It's a review copy from some Nintendo game that came out, you know, six years ago. Who cares? And now it'd be like, ah, mm -hmm. you know, we want that. You know, and some of those early issues at EGM or this predecessor, uh, uh, Electronic uh, Game Player Magazine are very rare and very valuable, and they th were throwing out, you know, boxes of them, boxes and boxes and boxes of them. So that is, that's history that's lost, and yeah. it's still being lost now. And I'm hoping that I can get that reversed to where these places will be like, okay, we're through with this stuff. Now let's give it to somebody who will preserve it, mm -hmm. or let's sell it to someone who will preserve it, or let's make sure that it's that. Because who knows 
what that'll be. Maybe the guy that designed this one shovelware game will go on to be the next great, and that's a piece of that history. Maybe this game introduced a character for the first time that becomes an iconic character, and here's this piece of this history. And this is what goes back to kind of what I talked about before, is the you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but that sucks. Right? History is made every single day. Video game history is made every single day. And it's gotten to the point of baseball. Right? Somebody hits a home run ball, a home run that breaks the record. They want that ball. They need they want that ball. They want to preserve that ball. They want to put that ball on display and make sure that that because that's a historic ball. It wasn't always that way though. It took people going, dude, this stuff is important. We need to grab this and preserve it. And, and, you know, do what we can on that. And eventually it became known enough to where that's the automatic reaction. Yeah. We got to get there with video games. And there's a long way to go. I feel like there's a long way to go, but that short window of time, because a lot of those pioneers are going to start leaving this world, and there's a lot of this stuff is going to end up lost before we can, you know, it's it's now. It's, and it's it's now, it's, it's not, you can't be casual about it. Absolutely. I mean... Obviously, I approached you about my podcast before I really even had an idea of what I wanted to do. Um, And through you, I've been able to sit and talk to some of those people. You know, maybe not the head of Atari, but, you know, the creators or the co-creators of iconic characters and iconic games and iconic periods in history. Um... And then I get to talk to people like John Hardy at the National Video Game yeah. Museum who, who started as a collector, and now he's a curator. Well, it's the same thing that's happening to me. It's yeah, like, you it's unwittingly just, have it's, become it's, a curator for, well, yeah. archi- for your archive. Yeah, you know? it, it's just started accumulating <laughs> so quick. And like I said, I mentioned before, people get hung up on monetary value. You know, when I go out to a yard sale and I buy a big giant stack of N64 games for pennies on the dollar... I'm hoping to find those special things. I will resell a portion of that stuff to continue to self-fund what I'm doing. Maybe I'll do a 501c3 at some point. I'm still undecided on that. There's benefits and there's detriments. Absolutely. Um, kind of this Indiana Jones type on the, you know, some of the places I'm going, I'm coming out just filthy. But sometimes I'm finding these special things. I'm looking for those special things that deserve to be archived. Those Akira prototypes, if I was just looking at monetary value, I sold them in two, two days. I still have them. I'm always going to have them, so I have anything to say about it. Um, those are archived. Those are not for sale at any price, period. Not, not going to be. Those are archived. That's historically significant thing. It is not for sale. It is not for generating revenue. Kind of inadvertently made me, yeah, like a, a, you know, a, a curator or maybe more like a... a What's the word I ended up picking recently? I don't even remember. I was trying to look for a word, a conservator. That's what jumped out on a cinnamon <laughs> with, conservator. Because that's really more what it is, too. It's just trying to get people to, you know, hey, this Super Nintendo's broken, so let me throw it out. I'm like, no. Even if it can't be fixed as is, its parts can, be, can go to repair others. Maybe two can become one, and at least that way you have one more survivor than you had if, you know, otherwise. That sort of stuff. So that, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what came into it. That's why when that one guy in the panel 
was asking, like, are you going to do a book or this or that? And it's, yeah. like, I'm, it's like the thing is, is that I'm kind of trying not to make a long term. I'm going. I'm doing this because I'm going to go there because I don't know where this is going to steer me. Absolutely. John dealt, dealt with that same thing. John already dealt with that same thing. That was not his. Was not his original intent. It's not like he sat down one day. He's like, well, I'm going to start getting this stuff up because I want to do a museum someday. And this. It's not what his intent was. Absolutely. It just started to happen that way, and then eventually that did become his goal. And even then, it didn't pan out the way he, I'm sure he imagined, you know, I'm sure Frisco, Texas was not the first, no. and I know, because we actually talked about that, yeah. that was my first question, and they'll hear, you know, everybody who's listening will hear that in our interview, but my first question for John was, why is the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas, <laughs> of all places, you know, and I mean, and that's pretty much his answer is, you know, it just ended up working out that way, and well, the, the older I've gotten, the more I've kind of figured out that that's kind of the way you need to go about it anyway. Yeah. I think, and I'll, I'm going to wax philosophical on this a minute, <laughs> in, inside and outside of video gaming, is I think that people are taught at a young age that you're supposed to have this grand plan. Okay, at this age you do this, and at this great age you do this, and at this age you do this, and then that turns into this, and then you do this, and then this is what you do until you turn 65, and then this, you, the world does not give it to you that way. No. You can plan that all day long. So I think where a lot of people get in trouble in life is they like, okay, here's my plan, here's what I'm going to do for the next 50 years, and maybe their passion for something dwindles out. Mm-hmm. Maybe their passion for something else comes along later in life. Maybe what they're skilled at gets phased out. Maybe they can be on the cutting edge of something that hasn't started yet. You know, maybe there's there's a constant thing of self-discovery. There's this constant flow of that. And if you don't, you know, kind of listen to it and go with it. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think what helps me is I grew up with parents that were like that. In different ways. My dad was the, you do this and do this and you do this and do this and do this and do this because that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And, you know, you don't go do, you don't take these risks. He could have gone and played semi-pro ball. He could have gone and started his own business or gone in to start, and he always would pass out because it wasn't the safe path. He didn't want to risk losing what he had because he thought he was, this is what you're supposed to do. You wake up, you go to work every day, you earn a living, you make the house payment, you make the car payment, you do this and this and this. You stick X into retirement, and it'll be there when you die, and you can live off of it, which yeah. is not true anymore anyway. <laughs> um, he ended up losing everything anyway. Through no fault of his own. Yeah. But he ended up doing that anyway. So, and he, he didn't really chase anything. Yeah. He, he tried to determine how the world was going to work for him, and it didn't. My mom always wanted to do these different things. She wanted to write the great American novel. She wanted to do this and do that. And she would put her toe in the water, so to speak. And she'd start on it a little bit, but then she'd chicken out. Mm-hmm. And she would back off of it. Like, I'm going to write the great American novel. And then for a week and a half, she would just be flying away on the typewriter. And she would pull back. And then she wouldn't work on it again for five years. She never did finish it. You know, because she kept having this doubt of like okay well maybe I need to go just go do this instead and she didn't take let life take her you know I, I mean we're let's put it this way we're, we're sitting on a big giant ball of dirt it's flying around a big old star 
we have absolutely no control over that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> we don't have any control over really what's going on down here. We have reasonable control. But I think that things come along, you keep learning, you keep listening, and you, you know, obviously you have an idea of where you're at. I'm at an age now, I know where my passion lies. I don't think I'm going to suddenly stop liking this video game stuff after 36 years yeah. of feeling like I do about it. But I don't want to sit here and say, okay, my destination is to have a physical spot that does this. Some of that's going to be determined by what my discoveries are. That's already, honestly, is that not how it's been? Is that how it's been? <laughs> no, because it's like, okay, I'm doing this. Okay, well, I found this big thing in magazines. Okay, well, let me do this. Okay, now I found prototypes and production things. And now I have some of this. And now I have paperwork. And I have, so now it's like, hmm. And some of that's going to be, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of steering its own way. Absolutely. Who knows? When I, I drive back from here tomorrow morning. I might stop somewhere and find something that completely shifts the narrative in another direction. It, it could be anything. A, a guy like that uh, is uh, Terry Diebold. Terry and Dan Diebold, the people that found the Nintendo PlayStation prototype. Oh, yeah. They. Uh, we met him at Let's Play. I guarantee you he was not thinking, hey, you know, someday I'm going to find this rare legendary video game thing and... This console prototype that they... Thought there were none of, and, and, and he doesn't. He didn't. And <laughs> then, in his you know, attic. <laughs> then he started getting opportunities to go take it to events and things like that. And you know, I think if you were to ask him, you know, what is he going to do? Well, what's you know, what's going to be the eventual fate of it? I don't think he knows that yet. No, because everything in video gaming right now is in this whole ebb and flow and everything. Anyway, I'm the guy that's been talking to anybody, just like we're talking here, been having these conversations with people for 30 something years and it's only over the past few years anyone actually started to want to listen and you know and a lot of people are like dude he'll talk your head off about this stuff all day we've had to deal with it now it's your turn but no but it's just now has that happened yeah i for a long time thought it never would I never thought I would be in, in movies talking about this stuff. I never thought I'd be up at, you know, at events and talking about this stuff. I never thought you know, I'd be verified on, on Twitter you know, because I talk about this stuff yeah. or have opportunity. I never thought that would be a thing. I hoped it would be. I never thought it would be. It just kind of came along. Everything is swirling and kind of changing, and it's going to continue to do that. We're kind of in this... this I won't say make or break. I don't think it's going to die, but what form it takes yeah. is not, it's not set right now. It's not. Absolutely. So, you know, Ready Player One and Rampage in the theaters could change the whole thing. They could shift it into another direction. Maybe Cake Bites will change the whole thing. You don't know. <laughs> you never, but you never know. I know. Well, because the thing with even that, and I want people hearing this to understand this, too. Some of these content creators in the gaming space in particular, sometimes they get down because they see the people out there that have these gigantic audiences. And they're like, okay, well, I did a stream and 12 people watched. And they kind of get bummed out, you know. Or I wrote an article and it got 50 hits. I did a YouTube video and it got 100 views. And they get kind of bummed out by that. But the thing with that is if you even reached one person and that took something out of that, some piece of information out of that, or some something like that out of it, then it did its job. 
and it helped kind of the whole, the greater good because when I've talked to Jeff Peters down there, they had no idea that what they were doing was influencing a young man like me and would influence, I would be safe to say if it wasn't for what they were doing, what Ross and what Howard Phillips did at Nintendo, people like that, Andy Eddy over at Video Games Computer Entertainment Magazine, they weren't doing the stuff they were doing then. I don't know that I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. Because those are the first people that taught me, hey, this is a thing that can turn into this. And I don't think that that's how that would have worked out. Yeah. They, at their time, weren't thinking about that. And I'm sure they certainly weren't thinking about some of the, you know, I brought some obscure things up to some of these people sometimes. Some of these, <laughs> these industry people or veterans or pioneers, and they're like, what, what? And it's like, but that one little thing they did that one time clicked something in me that led to other things that led to me doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe something on Cake Bites or maybe something on anybody else's thing might be that one thing. That one thing that brightens somebody's day or gives somebody that one little idea or something they hear in this sparks that one little piece of interest in one particular thing that opens up a whole other set of doors for them. That's important, too. That's part of getting the word out on this. It's like I talked about with the panel today. You know, people that have those memories of their neighborhood arcades, I do. I mean it. I think they need to go on and do a blog or a video or do something to talk about this stuff and make sure that it's out there. Or maybe get other people interested in talking about it and all that stuff. Otherwise, it's going to be lost. Absolutely. Because yeah, everyone's just, perspective is important in this. It's very, it is. Because, I mean, so much of this is driven by people like us who may have never worked in the video game industry as professionals. You know, we are consumers <laughs> turned, I don't know what you would call it, but. It's still forming. Yeah, it's exactly. still evolving. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to doing a lot of work with, you know, your physical archive and, and, and with the people that you have gotten to know. Um, I mean, you've already been so influential on the people I've gotten a, the chance to talk to for the show. And I don't think I could ever thank you enough for that. Well, that's, <laughs> well, I mean, you reached out and you were interested in this on a, I want to say a different level than a lot of people. And some people might not takes too kindly to what the next part of what I say. You got a lot of YouTubers and Twitchers and stuff like that out there who they're not interested so much in getting the facts or the whatever right. They're interested in like, well that's an interesting piece of video game trivia. Well let's make our next exciting in your face YouTube video about this <laughs> because they want to get more subscribers, more hits, more ad revenue. They're mired with inaccuracies and incomplete information and sometimes just utter garbage. The history's not always sexy, you know? No, it's not. <laughs> or they're not, they're not really doing that part of the work. They're just trying to get that, that part out of it. And they're actually, what they don't realize a lot of times, is that they're actually doing more harm than good. They're actually making this job harder because we got to go back and clean that sort of stuff up. There was a, I listened to part of a podcast recently. And I won't name names here because he'll generate four, four or five videos responding to it, and I don't want to. I don't want to deal anyways. with that. <laughs> uh, this guy was doing a long, drawn-out podcast, rebutting, or at least so he thought, comments made by somebody else of a historical status. He sees it differently than her, and he was kind of, re, re, you know, doing a rebuttal. 
and telling her how wrong she was and how right he was. And yet some of the things he was saying was so wrong or he didn't have pieces of information that are vital to the very topic he's talking about. Yeah. Well, I don't remember this person's name. Well, that name is important. That name is what... <laughs> you don't know. It's like it's like saying you're doing a whole podcast correcting the history of presidents, but it's like, that George guy, what was his name? I don't remember. Was Ben and Franklin then, a president? Yeah, and then, and then his, his, his audio guy or whatever chimed in once in a while. At one point, he thought Pong was the first video game. It's like, no... No, you're making this worse. You know, um, the Atari landfill is a great thing on that. I think I brought that up in one of our first, like, one of the first times we hung out, and you were like, no, 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 no. Well, because... Well, because <laughs> but it was, it, when well, I search video game history, that is one of the most prominent events from the 80s that pops up. But, but see, that's the thing with that, is guys like me already knew that it happened. They were literally... Anyone could have done just a few hours of due diligence and found the actual newspaper articles that confirmed it. Fifteen years ago, they could have done that. And they would have seen that, okay, this is defective merchandise. It wasn't just E.T. Yeah. It was all kinds of stuff. It's there. It's be over. But somehow, like, I heard this, and I heard it was E.T., and I heard this, and then they spread that, and it became an urban legend, and it became all this, this mess and it's like, guys, no. You know, like, they, they turned it into something that it didn't need to be. And that's sort of like, ah. Because they did more harm than was good. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm hoping that that's not always the case. But, you know. Well, the only thing I can really think of doing is putting out a show of my own. <laughs> and I'm not even trying to do anything like tackle misinformation. I'm just wanting to talk to people about their their own personal history and you know if that clashes with already well-known popular history you know popularized history then i guess we'll see what happens <laughs> <laughs> well but i mean I, well and sometimes too with those creators sometimes too um i've been running the things with those i'll go ahead and say this because i think the point needs to be out there is years ago i was very flattered i was i'm in a film called world one one and it was supposed to be first of a series. So it was called World 1-1 because it was covering this genesis, this beginning point for the industry. And then the next chapter was going to be 1-2. You know, some people misunderstand it, thinking, well, why is it about mostly Atari if it's called World 1-1? They don't yeah. get that part. I'm very flattered because they used far more of me in that movie than I thought they would. And there's one particular scene, and they're talking about Atari, and they're talking about the day that Sears Roebuck, which Sears at one point in time, that was the make or break retailer to be in. A lot of the younger people won't realize that, but at one point in time, Sears was, that was the place. The day that the Sears people came to visit Atari about possibly doing a deal. And I'm, I was amazed watching it because it's going around, there's three people that they're going to talking head clips with three different people. Myself, <laughs> Al Alcorn and Nolan Bushnell. And I'm like, I cannot believe that I'm in a film with those guys jumping around telling this story, helping mm -hmm. tell the story. And then I saw Al in an interview kind of criticize the film for that part. 
saying, you got a movie like that, and they talked to me and Nolan, and then when it comes to this one part of the story, they got this guy that wasn't there, uh, you know, talking about it, and, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> and so I emailed him, and he, he already kind of knew who I was anyway, not yeah. real well, but we talked before, and he, he came to me, and it was like, well, we were there, we're the ones that feel like we should have had all the time talking about it. But that's, that's exactly, but, you brought that up earlier. Well, well, I was like, I responded, it's like, did I get any of the story wrong? <laughs> well, no. No, not really. You're spot on. It's like, okay. So the problem is just the airtime. Like, okay, well, I, I can kind of understand where you're coming from, but I hit him with, there's going to be a day where you're not here to tell that story. And I'll still be here. And it'll be my job to tell that story. It'll be my job to tell it. So I would think, from your perspective, and not just because it's me, but I would think you would be happy that somebody who was getting that story right and wants to talk about it was getting the opportunity to do it. Because don't you want that story to live on? And he kind of even didn't respond to that. But it was kind of <laughs> what it was, because it's... In a way, I guess it's the same thing that I run into with, with Walter Day and his his people. I was like, well, he should be the one to tell the story. It's his story. It's like, well, not only is he too close to it, but who's going to tell a story when he's not here anymore? Somebody's going to have to. I would exactly. think that if it, I think that the fact that anybody wants to talk about him at all, I would hope, because I don't plan on going away for a long time, and I'm hoping that what through my work, the reason I'm trying to help other people when I can, such as yourself, is because when I'm gone, y'all will still be around. It needs to go down down the mountain here. It needs to go down. The elevator needs to go back down and get some more people up here. It can't just be the people, well, I was there. You shouldn't talk about it, youngster. It's like, no, they should because, you know, who knows? 30 years from now, yeah, you're, it's going to be like, you're the one. Wow, yeah, she's the one that was talking with Warren Davis and John Newcomer <laughs> and all those people. Like, wow, you know, she's been... But that's what it is. You talk to those people. There are people right now making YouTube videos and all these other things about video game history and never talk to those people. Talk about them. And sometimes they don't even talk about them <laughs> because they don't know even know who they are. It's funny because that's, that's, I always start it with their name. If I tell... People ask me about my podcast and, and I say, you know, I'm talking to people who work in the industry. Like, Warren Davis, have you ever heard of him? They're like, no. I'm like, have you heard of q They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, he worked on q And they're like, oh, wow. You know, like, for them, it's 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 about the game and not so much the person, but without the person, well, there would have been no game. And there's a giant gap there that and, doesn't exist with other things. It doesn't exist with movies. I mean, not everybody's going to know the producer or whatever. And, and some of that, though, too, is because of the way the industry was early on. Yeah. Because they were, they didn't want to identify who designed their games because they were afraid that other companies would come pluck them away. It was very, very competitive. It's actually one of the things that led to the founding of Activision was you had Atari programmers that didn't feel they were getting enough of a cut, right? They're getting paid a salary, and then they produce a game that made millions of dollars for the company. And it's like, well, where's, we should be getting a piece of that, right? Yeah. And they weren't getting their names. Like, no one knew who they were, right? So... And that, that that was part of that problem with those early things. But I would think by now that had been corrected. And it has with certain games. Everyone knows Miyamoto. Everyone knows the games he worked on. Yeah. But they should know, you know, Toru Iwatani. He kind of 
created a little game called Pac-Man. It did pretty good. <laughs> kind of influenced a few things. They should know who uh, Ed Log was at Atari. They should know Warren. They should know John Newcomer. They should know these people. And it's unfortunate that they haven't, but I think part of it's because there hasn't been a real push to do that. And it would be a real shame if that became a big... It'd be a real shame if it's like, I don't know, some artists and stuff where... You know, they're not truly appreciated until after their time. That'd be yeah. a real shame. That'd be a damn shame. These guys are here now. I think my favorite part is talking to all of them, and they're all flattered that I would be interested. Like, it's it's this very honest flattery. Like, they, they're they genuinely surprised that I care enough to, ha- to interview them. Yeah. And that's my favorite part in all of this is... I've always been interested in the person because those concepts have to come from someone, maybe mm. a group of people, but to, to be able to ask about the Qbert knock, you know, the <laughs> or um, John Hardy talking about specific items in the, in the collection that, that he acquired, or, I mean, yeah. even your story about phone calls you get for... I, mean, I didn't even, even realize that the Akira prototypes were opened in a box on Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. You know, like those are the things. Or that, that they were sitting in an attic for twenty something <laughs> years. Exactly. In it, not that far away from me in North Texas. <laughs> exactly, and, of and, all places. Yeah, and that people for the longest time had been like, you know, the game. There was a Game Boy version being worked on, and nothing had ever surfaced. Not a picture. Not a screenshot. Nothing. And that that was discovered like that, exactly. you know, and it's like, how many more things like that are out there? Exactly. And and so I want to wrap this up because we've been talking for almost two hours. It happens. <laughs> Typically. Um, but I just wanted to say I'm really looking forward to working with you through all of this, whatever this ends up being. Um, and thank you for being my guest on my first episode. Because it means a lot to me. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, <laughs> I, like I said, it's it's a case of this sort of thing. You know, not only you know, like I said, I, I greatly admire your passion for this. Yeah. We need more to show it. We need more to take that step. We need more like it. But this sort of thing also, like I said, helps my mission get the you know get the word out about that. Absolutely. Because who knows, this could be heard by somebody who knows somebody who has something that's sitting around that might be at risk of being gone. So, with that being said, if they were to contact you, where would they find you? You could find me, uh, well, on my There's a lot new of places. URL. Well, <laughs> the main thing, my, my new URL is videogamepreservation.com. It explains everything I'm doing. And there's a new gallery up that shows just some of the stuff that I've turned up. And uh, most of it's archived. Some of it's just really rare and cool. Um, and then, of course, I'm on Twitter, at OriginalPSP. That is my main social media thing. If somebody wants to ping me for something and for some reason they're allergic to emailing off the website, mm-hmm. some people seem to be these days, the social media world, uh, pinging me on Twitter is the best way to get me to see it. Perfect, so. perfect. Well, thank you again, Scott, for being here with me. We are at the Houston Arcade Expo, one of the many shows that I've had the pleasure of going to, and Scott goes to to speak about the importance of preservation so if you're interested in what he is doing and and maybe where you can find him he normally is 
uh, posts a list of events that he's going to be heading to. So you can find all that on his website, videogamepreservation.com. Right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was the first episode. I hope you liked it. Um, I'll be back next week, of course. I guess you wouldn't really know that because this is the first episode, but we're going to be coming out weekly. Um, you can follow this show on everything, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn. You could probably find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. Uh, whatever else, Twitch. Definitely follow my Twitch because I'm going to be doing the Extra Life 24-hour gaming marathon on November 4th. Not this weekend, but the weekend after. So be sure to follow me there. Um, and if I'm missing anything, it'll be in the show notes on cakebites.com. See y'all next week. <laughs>